Hello, you are listening to Audio Fanfic Podcast. Sea Glass Blue by Mel Forbes on AO3. Rating General Audiences. Chapter 12. He thinks that every resident of this area of Maine has decided to go out to dinner at this specific restaurant tonight. And had he not made a reservation, he doubts they would have so quickly managed a table. The driftwood colored floors creaking beneath her little sandals. The table they take having a box of sugar packets, industrial salt and pepper shakers, and a bottle of Heinz ketchup as its centerpiece. The menus are in Comic Sans font, a single sheet of laminated paper. Today, the soup of the day is clam chowder, and the specialty dessert is blueberry pie, made with Maine blueberries. Would they like drinks to start? She hangs her sweater over the back of her chair, her handbag off its edge, little cap sleeves, navy fabric against her pale skin, hands folded on the table. She looks like his wife. Across from her, he's wearing a sweater and jeans and white sneakers, and he looks like a husband, her husband specifically. And he remembers times as a child when he would be put in holiday clothes, sweater vests and belts and khaki pants, posed in the makeshift studio at Sears. As he and his sister were positioned in the frame, he felt as if he were another person, an actor fully inhibiting his part as a son and brother. And now, sitting across from Scully, he feels so husband, the role foreign but embodied nonetheless. It should feel adequate, but it doesn't. He wishes he could capture the moment in a photograph, then remember the feeling for years to come. So, she says, looking up at him from her menu, clam chowder? All the tables frame the ancient dance floor, in the middle, scuff marks galore, a mediocre local band playing an upbeat Peter, Paul, and Mary song over poor sound equipment. It feels like a family restaurant. It feels like someplace where locals go only in the off-season. Clam chowder, he says, nodding. And she giggles, actually giggles. Her eyelids are sparkly, the little bits of glitter there catching in the setting sunlight, and she's luminous in a different way, shimmery on purpose. He never understood makeup until now. He almost wishes his eyes could be sparkly, too. It feels wrong to order anything other than lobster, she says, setting her menu down, folding her hands atop the vinyl tablecloth. Her ring acts as punctuation against her pale skin. He wants to hold her hands on top of the table, but doesn't want to be one of those couples. You're right, he says, and their waitress returns with two glasses of ice water. He whispers his thanks and wishes he and Scully could crack beers instead. So, a lobster dinner, or maybe a lobster roll instead. Each time he's gone out to get them dinner, he's foregone the side dishes and asked for whole lobsters instead. Cracked in the kitchen, or out on the deck, one plate sharing their pile of shells. Scully thinks the claw meat is the worst part, and every time she says that, he goffs, says it's the best. But his dexterity is poor. Is he too young for arthritis? So she has to crack the claws for him, then dip in a tiny fork in order to pull the meat out. He melts butter for them both, and they dip into the same tiny bowl. Sometimes, he catches her licking her fingers afterwards. He wants to watch her eat french fries. He wants to watch her eat much of anything. Though he knows his pain pales to hers, the time between her release from the hospital and now was filled with half-eaten dinners and awkward conversations. She was afraid to make herself sick again. She was afraid of so much, and it was hard to care for her both as a husband and a friend. No, it wasn't, but he felt the pull in each direction, for had they been on a case, he would have insisted that she finish her dinner, then check in on her before bed, 
though his intentions may not have been truly pure. But now, he could see how tired she was, and the most compassionate thing seemed to be scraping her plate and laying her rest her head on his shoulder while they curled up on the couch. But now, he wants to watch her eat almost anything. He wants takeout noodles on his couch, and pizza that she insists on folding in half, and cake, pudding cups, licking the little bits left on the lid, scraping out the last bits in the corners of the container. He wants chocolate vanilla swirl and cones at the local dairy bar, and they walk down to the beach and dip their feet in the ocean water because it's hot out, and she eats so slowly that the ice cream melts and drips down her knuckles, and she gives him the last little bit of her cone because she swears she's stuffed. He wants her to finish her coffee while they're at a diner, and then pick up his mug and finish that one too. The restaurant serves dinners in red plastic baskets lined with gingham print paper, thick-cut french fries, and little steel bowls of tartar sauce, fried fish smelling like summer. He wants to watch her finish a meal. When their waitress returns, she says she'll have the lobster roll with a side of fries, and he says he'll have the same. He's going to make her finish the whole plate. On the dance floor, awkward couples dance to the greatest hits of the past two decades, now worse than the songs were before, and he feels like a real person. He feels like if a slow song were to start, he could take her out onto the dance floor, and she would get all embarrassed and refuse at first, but eventually follow. And he's not afraid of love songs. She's not afraid of love songs either. When they first arrived here, they kept public radio on in the car. But now, she puts on popular stations and sometimes sings along. They've danced together in the kitchen. They can dance while surrounded by couples with less grace. And surely enough, the band switches to an Elvis love song, dedicated to everyone's sweethearts, whatever that's supposed to mean. He raises an eyebrow at her. He feels so suave as he stands up reaches out for her hand. Oh, he knows exactly what he's doing, and as he predicted, she's blushing, saying, no, 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 but following him out on the dance floor nonetheless. And there are plenty of other couples, so they blend in with ease. He learned how to dance at a cotillion. His motions feel so middle school, but he palms the small of her back with the motion feeling natural for him, and their open hands join, and she leans against him, as if he's worth leaning against. And the singer croaks out a nice note, and Scully buries her face against his chest, laughs secretly along with him. How romantic. He's wearing white tennis shoes, and is all too aware that he could squash her tiny painted toes with one wrong step. If she leans away from him, he thinks he might pull her back instinctively, his subconscious refusing to let her go. The sentiment is poorly sung, but he feels the word so deeply, as she holds him, sways with him to the music. He couldn't help falling in love with her. He couldn't have stopped himself even if he tried. At the end of the song, she stands on tiptoe and kisses him chastely, just one little kiss, and then they're hand in hand as she leads him back to their table. This is a normal night out for them. A normal night out? No. This is fantastic. Here in this all-American restaurant with thick-cut fries and Heinz ketchup. This is a life he once dreamed of living. Thinking back to that rainy, fateful day in her apartment, he realizes, all I really needed to do was ask. All of this was possible, so long as I asked. Are we going to call that our song now? Scully asks across the table, clearly joking. Maybe not that version, he volleys back. And she laughs. Could you pull over? He signals on the long straight road ahead, back to their rented cottage, pulls onto a grassy shoulder. There aren't any other cars for miles, and his headlights and the moon cast the only light around them. Do you feel sick, he asks, then hovers his hand over the key, wondering if he should turn the car off. 
No, no, she says, then unlocks the passenger side door and gets out of the car. Follow me. Though the road is empty, she looks both ways before crossing. Next to the car, there's a thick forest of evergreens. But in the direction she's heading, there's a wide field of long, tall grasses. So high that as she steps into them, the tips reach up higher than her waist. She walks daintily, lifting her sandals a little higher than normal, her arms out as if she's on a tightrope. He follows her because he has to. Where are we going, he asks. But she doesn't answer, only stops when she reaches the middle of the field and pats down the tall grasses, trying to make a spot for them. She sits down in the space she made, then relaxes flat on her back, her ankles crossed. Seeing her invitation, he comes down to join her. Tonight, the moon is full above them, and because there's so little light pollution, they can see so many stars in the sky. Though the view from their deck is so similar, they're not far from home now. He sees the stars from a different angle. The moon brighter tonight, and it's strange, as if he's a new person on the same planet. Here, he can get his bearings through finding the Seven Sisters, a thumbprint in the sky, and it's off-kilter now, not as familiar. When he was a child, he would go out onto the beach near his home and try to find new stars. But they had security lights. He couldn't see much. The parties and summer people distorted his views, but now the sky is painfully clear. If something were to happen, he would be one of the first to witness it. And alongside him would be Scully, a cosmic truth. He's not sure phenomena would interest him anymore if he couldn't witness them with her, or at least call her at three in the morning and tell her about them while she so obviously does not care. Or maybe she has cared all along. He'll have to ask. She touches his cheek so gently, turns his head so he's facing her. Has she been looking at the stars at all? From this angle, he can't see the road, the car, anything but the tall grass, and she kisses him. She fills his field of vision. He's on his side, and his body is flushed to hers, like how they are in bed, but different somehow. No sheets, warmth beneath their clothes. Now, she pulls him towards her, not because she wants to snuggle. The night is cool, but her body is so warm, and he brings his arms around her back as he kisses her, and he can feel her breath. How strange. Legs tangled, chest to chest. As she bends one of her legs around back of his, drawing him to her, he wonders if she's looking for more, if it's his turn to make some kind of move. And if he looks down, he notices the blur in his peripheries. He sees her underwear, so he chooses with conviction not to look down. They should head home. He should touch her. No, he should wait for her to take his hand and bring it to exactly the place where she wants it. No, he should hover his hand where he wants to touch, then wait for her permission. But where does he want to touch? Breasts are too obvious. What parts of her hasn't he touched? The back of her knees? If he reaches down just a bit to where her leg is bent around his, he can touch the back of her knee. His fingers reach to that spot, strangely warm, and she palms his chest as if they're lovers in a painting. When a car goes by, she stills, even though no one can see them. Then, he takes his hand on her leg and leads it up over the top of her knee. Her thigh, to the back of her leg, bare, because her dress has ridden up. Watching the motion, he catches a glimpse of her underwear, and in the half-light of the evening, her panties look blue. Take me home, she says, mean his gaze, and he's in love with her. He's painfully, disconcertingly, unavoidably, in love with her.
If you like this story and would like to contribute, you can do so by going to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash audio fanfic pod. As a patron, you are granted early access to one new story of your choosing per month. Thank you for listening. And remember, the stories are out there.